Um, we're going to have our reading now. So if you want to turn to the book of Daniel, uh, which can be found on page 883 um, in the Pew Bibles. And chapter 1, it says this. Um, Daniel's training in Babylon. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found, them e- um, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine, for bringing us uh, our reading, including those quite complex names. Uh, Shall we pray? Uh, So, Heavenly Father, we thank you and we come with expectations and with open hearts. Open our hearts, Lord, we ask to receive from your life-giving word today. Help us to see you, Jesus. Help us to be equipped to live for you courageously and faithfully in this world. Come by your Holy Spirit and meet us where we need and take us to that next level of obedience to you, Lord Jesus. 
Amen. Iraq. John and Liz uh, have visited Christians in Iraq. Um, Iraq Christians once numbered uh, 1.5 million. But in the two decades that followed uh, the US invasion in 2003, that number has been decimated. Now only a few hundred thousand remain in that country. First came the rise of Al-Qaeda in the early early noughties, or 2000s, which was then followed by the Islamic State, uh, which brutally persecuted not only Christians, but also other minority faiths from 2014 to 2017. Today, some historically Christian areas remain controlled by militias. And even this week, if you've been following the news, there's been tensions between the US and Iraq after the US State Department criticized the Iraqi government uh, and their treatment of a top Iraqi Christian leader called Cardinal Louis Sacco. Persecution um, and, uh, is still happening in that country, and it makes us feel, what must it, like, what must it feel like to be living as a Christian in modern-day Iraq? The pressure on Christians to conform to the world around us must be immense. It's hard to imagine. And today, we start a new sermon series, working our way through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. And this book is set within Babylon. And the ancient city of Babylon is located within modern-day Iraq. It's just a little over 50 miles south of Baghdad. And as we explore this chapter this morning, I I want us to consider what it must have been like for Daniel and his contemporaries to live in exile in Babylon, in where Iraq is today. And as we do so, we will find that life and faith in ancient Babylon has more in common with life for us today here in Maidenhead than life for Christians in modern day Iraq. We will see that there are important and relevant lessons on how we can live as people of God in our present cultural climate. And to help us to explore what these lessons might be, we're going to be looking at three topics today. Firstly, life in Babylon. Secondly, faith in Babylon. And thirdly, the God of Babylon. Life in Babylon, faith in Babylon, and the God of Babylon. So let's dive straight into life in Babylon. It was 605 BC that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. And the city fell, and the first of three great deportations happened. The first group of people that were taken into uh, exile, were were moved, deported into Babylon, were the ruling classes, the elite, the the cream of um, Jerusalem society. And in that group was Daniel and his friends. Daniel was just a teenager at the time, and he made that journey of over 500 miles from Jerusalem to the heart of the Babylonian empire. And when he arrived in Babylon, He was selected to train in an elite school. In verses 3 to 5, we read the following, that he was chosen with others as young men without any physical defect, handsome. Well, I think those two things alone automatically de-qualify me, but he was without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. 
These men were cherry-picked. They were the elite of the elite. And these young men, what happened to them? They were taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. They were assigned food and wine from the king's table. And after three years at this top school, they were to enter the king's service. In other words, they were going to take up high office uh, in, in the civil service. They were wined and they were dined and they were exposed to the very best of Babylonian culture and learning, and they were guaranteed and ushered into a top job, which may sound like quite a strange way to treat leaders of a defeated nation. You've just beaten them. You would think they would treat them a little bit more harshly. However, this was, in fact, a brilliant tactic of the Babylonian Empire. You see, there are two ways in which you can subjugate a nation, a people group. The first way, it, it, two ways in which you can mould them uh, in, 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 into what you want them to be. And the first way is to force them into a mould by pressure, by force. And this is what is happening in modern day Iraq. The devil is attacking through the front door. Christians are experiencing brutal persecution designed to make them either leave the country or to conform to the culture around them. The pressure to mould them is by sheer force of might. However, the ancient Babylonians realised that you cannot effectively rule by force alone. They recognized that such a tactic would leave their army too overstretched to take further territories. They would have to leave um, armed men in every city that they conquered. So instead, they did something that was quite counterintuitive. They took the leaders of the society, those that others might rally around should there be a future uprising, and they molded them. They took them and shaped them. They molded them to become the future ambassadors of the Babylonian Empire. So that were they to return to Jerusalem, there would actually be figures of unity and peace, not figures which might invite civil unrest and uprising. And as I said, there are two ways in which you can mold people. One is by sheer force, the devil attacks the front door, and the other way you can force people into a mold is by melting them. And this was the approach adopted by the Babylonians once the initial state siege had been completed. You see, the devil changes tactic, and now he attacks through the back door. The Babylonians, the Babylonians took the leaders of Jerusalem and melted them into their mold. And they did, through, did this through education, through culture, through fine wine and good food and the promise of success and the promise of power. And this is why the book of Daniel has much more to say to us as Christians living in Maidenhead. For society is seeking to mould us, not so much by pressure, although pressure is rising, we do get sort of external pressure, but more so through our exposure to culture, our education system, the promise that if only we'll conform to society, society will give us what we want. It will give success and power and good living. And what is interesting is that when the Bible speaks of Babylon, 
It not only speaks of the ancient city in which the book of Daniel is based, but Babylon also refers to the system of this world that is in opposition to the rule of God and his kingdom. We live in a world that has been created by God and for God. And yet the world has largely rejected God and is living in rebellion to him. And this is the true Babylon of the Bible, a world that is living in rebellion to God. And as the people of God, we are called to, to, to live as shining lights to display in beautiful and winsome ways what the kingdom of God is like to the world around us. That all would see the beauty of our king and would come to him. Daniel was living in the ancient city of Babylon. And we, my friends, are living in the spiritual city of Babylon. And the problem of both Babylons, the ancient city, and the spiritual reality, is that Babylon is not a neutral place. Babylon is actively seeking the allegiance and the affections of your heart. That's what it's after. It's after to mold you. It's after your heart. In the book of Revelation, Babylon is described as, as, a, as, a, as a prostitute, the mother of all prostitutes, someone who tries to lure others into her bedroom. She's actively using everything at her disposal uh, to, to make us hers, to melt us into her arms. For Daniel, as for us today, this soft, seductive molding comes in a multitude of ways. I'm just going to pick up on a few of them now. What was life like for Daniel and for us here today in the spiritual Babylon? First, there is the lure of freedom. It might seem strange if you think that these guys have just been taken captive and moved to Babylon. But actually, for Daniel and his friends, his, these young men, for the first time in their lives, they were actually experiencing true freedom. They were free from the cultural and their family expectations. This was an opportunity for them to decide for themselves whether they wanted to live wholeheartedly for God or not. It was a fresh start. And this is still the case for us today. We are afforded freedoms. We can choose what we do midweek. We can choose what we watch on TV. We can choose um, what we do on a Sunday morning. Are we going to choose with our freedom God? And it's really important, isn't it? It's really important to pray for our students as they head off to university, being given freedom for the first time. It's really important for those who are relocating. My prayer and my, sort of my action is always to try and embed them within a good, healthy local church where they're moving to. Because there's a temptation that comes with freedom. And then there was a, a molding of new learning. Daniel and his contemporaries were taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. And there's a real danger for us today. Think about our schools and the things that our children are being exposed to. And actually, let's open our eyes and think about ourselves and what kind of articles we're reading. You only need to open any sort of news app and you'll see that there is a, an agenda behind it. I've got a book on my bookshelf. It's called The Noble Liar. 
It's about how the BBC is actually got a huge agenda. And it's not just the BBC, actually. You know, uh, it, 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 society in general is looking to mould us by culture. And often, culture is at complete odds with the kingdom of God. We must, be, must have eyes open to recognise this and feed ourselves with the things of the kingdom. You know, our kids are starting to grow up. They're starting to get freedom. They're starting to be able to explore things like TikTok. And at times like this, I'm saying, this is the time where we need to get ourselves rooted in godly things. The, the Bible, we need to, if we're exposing ourselves to 20 hours of, of contemporary culture, how much time are we given to feeding ourselves with the good things of God? The language and literature of the Babylonians exposed Daniel and his friends to a plethora of false gods. And likewise, the language and culture of our present day Babylon looks to seduce us with its own false gods, the gods of materialism, of individualism, of status, of image. And then there was the molding of the king's table. You see, Daniel and his friends were assigned daily food and wine from the king's table. For these young men, this food and wine epitomized the opportunities that lay ahead of them. It was a taste of what success in Babylon would be like. Every mealtime, a message. This is what is in store for you. Enjoy it. You deserve it. This is the life that you're meant to live because Babylon is not neutral. It is seeking the allegiance and the affections of your heart. It wants to melt us in its mold. And what might the king's table look for us today? What taste of success threatens to lead us away, subtly, unwittingly, away from God? Is it that taste of success, of power? Is it sex or money or success at work or, or status or image? You see, none of these things are intrinsically bad in themselves. Just as the food and the wine at the king's table wasn't bad, but they all have the ability to seduce us, to win our hearts, to become our first loves and to lead us away from God. And this, my friends, is life in Babylon. And it's applicable for us. So which moves on to our second point, is how can we have faith in Babylon? How can we have faith in Babylon? When we find ourselves in Babylon, there were basically three common ways in which people react. When we realize we're living in Babylon, first way is to isolate ourselves. It's to, it's to move ourselves into sort of comfortable Christian bubble. Or we can assimilate ourselves. We can wholeheartedly and unquestioningly embrace the culture around us. You know, yeah, I mean, we even see it in the church today. You know, one of our bishops have recently said, you know, we need to, we need to recognize that there is a, a deep cultural, there is a deep divide between what, what we as the church thinks and, and, and what the world thinks, and therefore we need to start walking towards the world. There's a, there's a danger in assimilation to sort of wholeheartedly and unquestionably embrace the culture that is around us. Or the third way is that we become militant. 
We can become hard-headed and we can work ourselves up into a sort of frenzied aggression, an attitude of war against wider society and culture. However, Daniel, in this passage, models for us a better way than any of these three. What he does is he stays in without caving in. He doesn't retreat into a holy huddle. He doesn't cave into the culture around us. And neither is he militant in his approach. If we read verses 8 to 14, you will see how Daniel interacts with the chief official. He doesn't run headfirst into conflict. He engages with the official with generosity and respect. He reasons with him. He shows him grace and gentleness. And as we engage in the culture around us, we too should learn something from Daniel's approach. Daniel is courageous, yes, but he's also courteous. He refuses to assimilate or to isolate, but also refuses to be militant. He engages with generosity and gentleness, grace and respect. And what Daniel does is he draws a line. He draws a line. He could have drawn a line anywhere, but for him we read the line that he draws in verse eight. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine. And the key word here is resolved. You see, Daniel didn't make a knee-jerk reaction. He didn't quickly tweet something. He made a thoughtful, prayerful, deliberate, careful decision. He decided where his line was and then resolved not to cross it. And the question I want us all to answer today is this. Where is your line? Where is your line? All that culture throws at us, all that we hear in the media and through our sort of education, in our news, and, and all that the world offers us at the king's table, where will you draw your line? It's a question we need to carefully consider. The verse says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself. That word defile has clear religious overtones. He resolved not for him, it was not to eat and drink at the, Lord's ta- at the king's table because he wanted not to defile himself. He wanted to be faithful to God. So why did Daniel draw his line at the food and the wine? Well, there have been many sort of ideas linked with the various different Jewish food laws that have suggested. But I would suggest that none of these actually hold their ground. For example, some have suggested that he didn't eat at the king's table because the king's table would have included non-kosher meat, meat that wasn't allowed under Jewish food laws. But in that case, why did he not drink the wine? Others have said um, he didn't drink the food and the wine because the food and the wine, all the food and the wine, would have been dedicated to idols. But again, if this was the case, well, the vegetables would have been dedicated as well. So why would Daniel have been happy to eat the vegetables that had been dedicated to other idols? You see, I think that Daniel's refusal to eat the food and the wine was not actually to do with Jewish food laws. He didn't reject the food because of a rule but because he knew himself and he knew the weakness of his own heart. He realized the food and the wine held a seductive power 
that would pull him away from God. That, would, that, that, that he could be drawn away from his wholehearted devotion to God by the idols of luxury, success, status, and power. See, Daniel knew his heart, and that's why he draws his line at the eating food and drinking wine at the Lord's table. And for us today, living in Maidenhead, we too are faced with the same temptations. We know, we need to know our own hearts. We know we need to know the weaknesses we have for the idols of our culture. And so let me ask again, where is your line? Where do you need to draw the line? It's not just food and drink. It's not just at the king's table. It could be to do with culture and, and the society that we're in. Or it could be to do with the freedoms that we have and say, no, actually, I will choose to do this. I heard of a sort of... Uh, a, 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 a high-flying sort of businessman in, in London, and he, he was saying, you know, for him, his line was Tuesday evenings, that he just resolved, no matter what, even if it meant losing his job, he would not give up meeting with his connect group. That was his line. Where will your line be? What are the things, the areas in your life, where you know, in your heart of hearts, that if you move past that line, it will draw you away from wholehearted devotion to God. Let me encourage you to take these things seriously, to carefully, prayerfully, and confidently resolve, resolve not to cross that line. So we've looked together at life in Babylon, at faith in Babylon, and lastly, just a few words on the God of Babylon. Because where can we find the resources to live wholeheartedly for God in a world that is often at odds with his rule and kingdom. How can we do it? It's difficult. How can we find the resources to draw our lines and not to cross them? Our resources are found in the God of Babylon. And by the God of Babylon, I do not mean the false Babylonian gods with a small g, the gods of Bel uh, or Aku or, or Nigu or Nebu or, or any of the other Babylonian gods. When I speak of the God of Babylon, I mean the one true God of the whole world, of the whole universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God that we worship. The opening two verses of this book provides us some important information. In verse one, we read the historic reality. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the next verse frames this historic reality. Verse two, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. We read of the historic fall of God's city of Jerusalem and that this was the will and the work of God. Too long had this city rebelled against God. Too long had it ignored the calls of the prophets to return to him. God had to get their attention in a different way. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, but God is sovereign over all. That is the message from these verses. Now turn with me to the final verse of this chapter, verse 21. Turn over with me, and it says this, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
in 539 BC, around 70 years after Daniel was first deported as a teenager to Babylon, the seemingly invincible King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire was crushed by the Persian Empire, by King Cyrus. The kingdom that at the time when Daniel was taken into to exile looked so powerful, in a mere 70 years later, it would be defeated. You see, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God is sovereign overall. It is this perspective that God is sovereign over all powers, over all culture, over our Western contemporary individualistic sort of liberalistic culture that we live in today, that God is sovereign over our culture that will empower us like Daniel to remain faithful to God in Babylon. And if we don't grasp the sovereignty of God, if we don't trust that he's in charge, and eventually kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall and God is sovereign over all, then we will cave in to contemporary culture. But if we can grasp that God is sovereign, including over our own Babylon, then we will have the resources to draw our lines and the resolve not to cross them, the resources to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. So, On that note, let us pray for those resources. Shall we stand?